Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In this podcast, we are discussing a new project by the Campaign for Science and Engineering, CASE, called Discovery Decade, which is being launched today, the 28th of February, 2023. With me to discuss that is Dr. Ben Bleasdale, Director of the Discovery Decade Project at CASE. Dr. Bleasdale, welcome to the podcast. A pleasure to join you today, Gavin. So you're launching the Discovery Decade project this week. What are the main aims of this project? Well, this project has really grown up out of a frustration I had, actually, as a, an advocate for R&D, uh, talking to politicians, talking to civil servants, which was a sense that we, as a sector, had a very good line on what I've often labelled the value for money arguments. So, you know, you put your pound in, how many pounds do you get out from R&D? But actually what I felt we were lacking as a counterpart to that was a sense of how to talk about voter appeal. So what did the public want from R&D? Was support there? What did the public want to see R&D deliver in their daily lives? And I think, you know, considering the fact that the UK has grand ambitions to become a more R&D intensive nation, I was very aware that as a sector, we really need to do more about trying to build public support and enthusiasm and go beyond just talking about R&D as a concept to talking about investment in it and the idea of taxpayers' money specifically being spent on it and whether or not people supported that as a choice for society. So this project really has tried to think about how do we better understand where people are with their thoughts on R&D and particularly whether it should be invested in. And we've been scratching the surface with a, a lot of data collection over the last almost a year. And it'll be nice to tell you a little bit more about that as we continue in the podcast. But actually, the overarching kind of finding is that R&D is important and not urgent. And I think that's a really difficult place to fall between in public opinion, which is people do see the value of R&D and they think it's a useful thing in society. And we're starting from a very good perspective, actually, on that. But actually, when cost of living crises are squeezing people's budgets, when people are looking at, you know, strikes and pay deals and huge amounts of strife over money in society, I think there's a real sense that R&D might not be at the top of the list for investing in. So that's our big mission with this project, really, is to take stock of what the reality is of people's opinions on R&D. And then crucially is to try over time to make R&D matter to more people. I think that's probably the best way of summing up what we'd like the Discovery Decade work to do and to try and attract some new public supporters to particularly reach those perhaps who feel more distant to R&D at the moment and to really work with other advocates across the sector to try and reach those audiences and build that relationship. So it's a, a long process. We called it the Discovery Decade for a reason, which is it's not a quick fix. But for us, it's quite an exciting concept of trying to bring in that public angle as well as our traditional value for money arguments. Fantastic. And yes, I understand important but not urgent is a very interesting and, and slightly awkward place to be in a list of other uh, areas of public expenditure. So you're obviously launching the project today with some data. We love a great piece of data here on the podcast. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the findings that you're releasing today have said uh, and what some of the implications of those are. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully we won't disappoint in terms of the amount of data we're putting out. So the study that we've been doing, uh, as I say, over the last year or so, encompasses four large public opinion polls. So those are nationally representative samples covering 18,000 people across the UK and 14 focus groups. We're publishing all of that open access today as a resource for people to use. And it's, it's a treasure trove of data. And one of the reasons why we went so big, I mean, 18,000 is a, is a huge sample size. It's bigger than almost any other samples you get, even in big political polls, was because what we really wanted to be able to do was understand 
uh, a granular level how different audiences saw this. So rather than just going for aggregates, you know, everybody in the UK thinks this, was to really be able to dig down and say, well, actually, you know, if you're based in the Northwest, you might think this way. If you have kids, you might think this way. If you work in these types of jobs and these types of industries, you might think this way. If you care about climate change more than you care about uh, another big issue in society, then you might approach R&D in this sort of way. So we're really excited actually to have what is a vast treasure trove. And what we're offering today is a bit of a sense of what some of those key emerging findings are from that data. But actually what we're hoping is that people hopefully listen to the podcast and, and wider want to really dig into this and come and analyze the data. We're, we've built a, an interactive site on the case website that lets people you know, really kind of dig into the different demographic splits, how the different trends are in the data and to really interrogate it themselves. So our hope is that, yeah, we can offer a bit of a, a run through today, but actually I think there's a lot more to be found in the data that we hope other people will help us find. But I think in terms of some of the top line findings, what we're really seeing is that, as I mentioned, you know, we're starting from a very strong point as a sector. Almost three quarters of people say that the UK needs to be better at science innovation. And actually, we see a really strong cross-party consensus on R&D. So, you know, conservative Labour voters equally likely to respond to that question uh, in a positive way. And, and I think what we really want to be able to reinforce with some of this is that as a sector, we start from a great place. And in some ways, it's up to us to lose that great position by not working with it in the right way. But there are plenty of headwinds. And I think primarily the sector's visibility isn't great. We're not cutting through. People don't have a good perception of where R&D happens, who does it, how much money it costs. They don't see it as something that happens down the road from them. They see it as happening somewhere else. It's a big abstract concept. And actually, you know, things like the science superpower tagline aren't cutting through. So only 12% of people say they've heard of it and know what it means. So there's an enormous amount to do to try and give the sector a clearer public identity that matches the amount of money, the scale of the money that's going into it. So I think the big risks for the sector are that people just don't see the benefits of R&D. You know, a large proportion of people say that R&D doesn't benefit people like them. They say that wealthy people and big businesses are the winners from investing in R&D. And when we've asked people with a hypothetical scenario where the government decides to cut the R&D budget in half tomorrow, a third of people support that straight off the bat. And if we put that with a rationale of saying they're going to cut energy bills with that extra money, an outright majority of people support the cut. So we're really concerned that although we are starting from a good position with public support, it's fragile. And actually, one of our focus groups, someone described it as a luxury to fund R&D at this moment that uh, we should try and get other things in order before we spend money on possibles, probables, maybes, and maybe nots. And I think that was a really stark reminder for me that actually the squeeze is real and people really need to feel that R&D can help solve problems now as well as investing for the future. And if they can't see that benefit, then they very rationally will decide that it's not a priority. So as you say, Gavin, to break that dilemma between the important and the urgent is going to be trying to make sure that R&D feels more relevant to people and feels like a tool that can help solve some of the problems they're feeling and suffering from right at this point. One of the interesting things I found from the data is actually a lack of awareness of the actual term R&D. And it, it prompts the question whether either is more needed to get that acronym out there, or should we actually be talking about science or technology or new products, or are we self-inflicting a wound by using a term that's not very helpful? 
I think that's a really good question. And it's one of the things we've, we've tested quite deeply in some of the data, which is exactly what choice of term works. Who does it reach? And crucially also, do some terms better align with the idea of investing in this more than others? You know, in some of the focus groups, we heard people speak about the difference between investment and spending on R&D. And a lot of that comes down to the types of terms you use to describe the action itself. So we've we've been really kind of burrowing down into that idea of terminology. And I think you know, the sector is really going to have to think carefully about how it describes what it does to do that in a way that feels familiar to people that uses the right terms. But also, I think crucially is to become more consistent. I think one of the biggest problems we have is almost kind of terminology clutter, I guess, across the sector, which is we all describe what we do in different ways. And very understandably, the public are not connecting those together as a single field or a single industry in the way that others might for other industries. So I think it is incumbent on our sector to decide and then stick to something. But I think finding something that, as you say, Gavin, feels clear, tangible, not jargony, is going to be exactly the sort of decision that we want to make. Well, let's pull out some of this. And we've sort of started to get get into this anyway. But but let's pull out what are some of the implications for those who are involved in communicating about science, about technology, about R&D to the general public? What what are the what needs to change? What do they need to learn? What's what, what do they need to do differently? I mean, I think the data is able to give us, I think, help in three areas. And I, and I would say from the very beginning of this that Part of developing this data set has involved us going out across the country, talking to advocates working on the front line of this in huge range of different contexts, different industries, different disciplines, to really try and understand what's working and what isn't. And we start from a good position that lots of things do work. You know, we've got a really strong public engagement community in this country. Um, we've got institutions that care about the public's opinion and really want to connect. So. My hope with this data is that it's a helping hand to guide us to the right places at the right times and to use all of that kind of support, motivation and enthusiasm and channel it in a way that can be more effective, really, and more you know efficient, I guess, at achieving our goals. So I think with the data, what we can really see is, is three areas I think we can really think, perhaps rethink uh, as a sector. I think the first one is this idea of really targeting our audiences more carefully. So using the size of the data that we've got, we can really start to pull out what are the factors that affect your support for R&D? How does that split along demographic group lines and perhaps also attitudinal lines? So, you know, the things that people care about, their passions, the things that they'd like to see happen in society. Are we able to start to bring groups together that might respond similarly to a particular type of message about R&D? And one of the strongest differentiators we've seen throughout the data is age. Older people are much more likely to be supportive of R&D in lots of different ways compared to younger groups. And actually that younger groups, you know, goes all the way up to people in their 40s, being much more likely to see R&D as something that doesn't benefit them, that isn't a priority right now, that, you know, the, the UK shouldn't worry about investing in R&D because we can piggyback on the R&D done by other countries. I think there's a real sense, actually, that there's a massive gap between R&D and, and younger people and a desire to try and really target our messages to audiences like that, because we can see that they really don't respond to things like the science superpower brand, to the idea of, for example, international competition and the UK catching up to other countries. There's some very typical messages that as a sector we use that really don't work with that group at all. And we really want to rethink, OK, well, what do they care about? Where do they start from? And can we really try and build messages that work for them? So I, I think there's a huge amount of work to do there in that first area of, of really trying to target our audiences and, and use that, uh, that data on passions and attitudes to really help us. 
I think the second area is the messages themselves. We've been able to test a huge range of the typical messages that the R&D sector uses, uh, to think about all the different frames that you might put around why something's important, positive ones, ones that are based on you know fear of missing out of something, ones that are on the what if happens if we don't do this. We've been able to really explore how different groups respond to those different messages and motivations and allow us to really think about how we can then link R&D back to the things that people do care about and show that it is relevant, that it allows us to tackle problems that are on their list of concerns. And I think in that as well is the element of, of building a local link. And this was something that came up in lots of different ways through the data, which was, you know, two thirds of people told us that they didn't know much about R&D happening in their area. And that's despite a university in every pretty much every major town in the country, you know, R&D is on people's doorsteps. They unfortunately just don't see it. And I think there's a lot more to do from the sector's perspective there of making that R&D visible, because again, a similar proportion, about two thirds of people said they wanted to hear more about R&D in their area. And people told us that they trust people living down the road from them working in R&D to tell them how much money was required to make it happen. So I think there's a real desire to build those messages, but also add in that frame, which is can we be doing this more locally than we currently are? Can we be reaching people where they live and talking about R&D that's happening near them? And then finally, I think the third area that I'm really keen we think about is the messengers themselves. So who do people want to hear from? And I went into this research with a real concern, actually, that there was a risk of self-interest for the sector, which is can people from within the sector be taken seriously when they're talking about how much money is required when they are working in that sector? They're the ones that benefit from it. And I was really pleased, actually, that that people do want to hear from the experts. And actually, that idea of self-interest doesn't derail conversations. The public are conscious of it. They see the risk for bias. But actually, they trust researchers, research charities, universities to really speak about how much money is required. Research businesses were less so. There was a little bit of a sense of whether profit motive might influence their perspectives. But actually, with certain groups, so particular voter types, particular age groups, Business voices, those who are doing R&D business in the, in the real world, actually were really credible. So again, I think it's about targeting the messenger that we have to the groups that really want to hear from them. And actually, the, the only real universal performance was politicians, which did terribly. I think of all strikes, we tested local, national politicians, mayors, everybody. People really didn't feel that they were credible ambassadors on R&D. They didn't feel that they knew what they were talking about. They didn't feel that they'd keep their promises and uh, deliver on what they were saying. And actually, there's a real sense within that that it is important to be able to have political conversations about R&D. But if that's the only conversation that's happening, we risk actually even good political intentions being read as you know poorly motivated by the public, that the messenger kills the message, even if they genuinely mean it. And I think that's a real wake up call, I think, for the sector, which is it's important that the sector is able to articulate its own re- rationale for investing in R&D. And that should be politically compatible. It should be something that can be part of political conversations. But we shouldn't remain reliant solely on politicians being the ones who articulate the reason for investing in R&D. So that pulls out all sorts of interesting questions. One of them that comes to my mind, you've talked about the targeting of the message. Is there any implication from what you're saying that there would be a, a greater sense of buy-in if we also targeted the money itself? So thinking of greater hypothecation of specific money for specific areas, for healthcare, for uh, environment, or possibly specific geographical areas, since that was one of the other things you came up. Is there anything from your data and your project that suggests that that would increase a sense of uh, buy-in? 
I think it's a really interesting question. And, and it comes down to that idea of talking about inputs and the money going in and that being separated out versus the outputs. And, you know, one of the things when we've looked down the list of people's concerns and the things they'd like R&D to fix, they are things that R&D already does help with already. You know, I can find you a list of, of examples of it. And I think in my mind, a lot of this comes down to actually it's more the comms than the funding choices that that do matter. I think you know, people were actually very trusting in the R&D system, making decisions and experts helping to make sure that the money is going to the right places. And, you know, that's not to say that people weren't aware of things like time lags and blue sky motivations. None of that was actually a blocker to support. People were patient. They were supportive and they were actually very conscious of the fact that, you know, for the problems of the magnitude like climate change, that required big blue sky thoughts, long term projects and very ambitious ideas. So, I think there is a sense that, you know, there isn't, it, it's not, necess- not necessary really to box R&D straight into something that says it's exactly just for this, it's going for that, you know, investment opportunity. And, and I think some of the things that people wanted R&D to do are going to be quite hard to label onto boxes anyway. I don't think we can have a research council for a better future, but uh, much as it sounds quite nice. Um, but I do think that for me, the long-term, you know, questions that this data raises are, are we able to actually start to engage people in a different way by involving them in some of the setting of priorities? And, you know, we've seen that with the Longitude Prize and other examples in the UK. But I was lucky to be involved in Science Foundation Ireland's Creating Our Future project last year, which was a giant publicly led research agenda setting exercise. And I mean, it's an incredibly difficult process to go through. And it's a really interesting one to look at, which is what happens when you ask people what they would like from research and how do you build a research agenda from that? But I've always taken an interesting kind of thought experiment from it, which is if I was to tell you, Gavin, that, you know, three years from now, we were going to run the same process in the UK and set the public research agenda based on what the public told us they wanted, is how would we engage with the public between now and then in order to feel more confident about that process? And, And I think that's a really good way of looking at what this project's for in a way, which is we should live that sort of expectation anyway, even if it isn't going to happen. Uh, because I think if the public can't see the value and can't feel that their you know, desires and ambitions for R&D are reflected somewhere in the mix, then I think it's going to be very hard to convince them that it's a priority for public money. Well, talking of priorities for public money and stepping very slightly away from uh, the Discovery Decade project, but but I can't resist asking someone from Case, this project, uh, this new data comes uh, the week after uh, we've heard that money that had originally been set aside for the Horizon Europe programme has actually been in return from the science budget to the Treasury. I mean, what does that mean? Does does CASE as an organisation have concerns about some of the longer term funding promises for R&D? I mean, I think I've always felt on R&D investment is we can never afford to be complacent. You know, CASE itself was set up 40 years ago exactly to push back on proposals to cut government funding into R&D. So it's it's always been part of our DNA to remain sceptical, you know, constructively sceptical of promises for delivering investment and to be on on the money, on the numbers every step of the way to make sure that promises are being kept. We were one of the first out the gate uh, when that announcement came out to really say that, you know, continued support stability for R&D is the only way that we're going to realise the ambitions that the government have. But it was a reminder that, you know, whether it was that announcement or the next big test of R&D, whether that's the election and manifestos or spending reviews or budgets, 
we do need to be able to quickly marshal supporters when we need them and to be able to articulate why securing that money investment is important. And at times we struggle because what we're left with mostly is input targets. You promised this money or you said we'd reach this target. And actually, I think we'll be much better placed as we start to develop a clearer sense of what the outcome is, which is if the government want to achieve X or the public want to see Y delivered, we'll never get there if we're retracting money or changing budgets or you know, reneging on promises. So I think being able to make sure that, you know, particularly in the run up to the next election, we're able to really marshal that sense of support and desire and demand for R&D being delivered so that hopefully politicians and civil servants see value and benefit from staying on track and for keeping those things and for finding ways to build that and, you know, invest more. But I think crucially, you know, regardless of the times we live in, politicians will always care about public opinion, as they should. Um, and actually, that's where we need to start as well as a sector, which is to be able to be aligned with where the public are and to make sure that when we come down to the wire on, on difficult decisions, we are able to say that the public are on the side of R&D and want to see it delivered. Well, that that pulls us right back to the Discovery Decade project again and understanding what the public think. So we're nearly at the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask you, what's next for this project? Where are you going to over the next few uh, days, weeks, months, years? Well, we've got plenty ahead. And I'll just briefly say that, uh, you know, the data coming out today is, is very much just step one. Um, where Our next job is translating all those numbers and figures and charts into real prototypes, so messages, campaign tools, guidance for different audiences. And we've actually got a creative agency working with us right now to really bring that stuff to life and to show that it's not just numbers on the page, it's it's practical things that can help you know, advocates make a decision and sit there when they're building their strategy, think about who they want to talk to, you know, how do they do that? Where do they talk to them? What messages do they use? So we're really excited about being able to actually take some of these numbers and put them back into the field, which is build some ideas, work with others across the sector to test, adopt and scale some of these ideas into their own work and make them their own. You know, the Discovery Decade project is always designed to sit behind the scenes to help others who are already there doing this great work and to just really kind of bring an extra level of focus to that uh, effort. So I'm really excited about what lies ahead, but we are very much looking for willing partners to come and help us put some of this stuff back into action. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. That's all we've got time for today. But uh, Dr. Ben Bleasdale, thank you very much. Thank you, Gavin. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Ben Bleasdale, Director of the Discovery Decade Project at the Campaign for Science and Engineering. Details of the Discovery Decade Project can be found on the CASE website at www.sciencecampaign.org.uk. Meanwhile, details about the Foundation for Science and Technology can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. There you'll find details of all our events, all our blogs, journals, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.